When you bring your child home for the first time, you want a baby monitor you can trust. When you choose Stork, you choose technology trusted to monitor 10 million babies in hospitals every year. Stork continuously tracks your baby's pulse rate, oxygen saturation, and temperature. Visit MassimoStork.com to learn more. Stork, a revolutionary baby monitor, is born. Stork is not a medical device. Read and understand all product labeling. Massimo data on file. Recipes aren't just service. They're not just written for a reader. They're documents of the author's history and their context. And, you know, these recipe writers often have something to teach. And I think it's really important for cooks to always think of themselves as students. Welcome to Didn't I Just Feed You, a podcast about feeding kids. Hey, I'm Stacy, And I'm Megan. We are beyond excited to be speaking to one of our favorite food writers, Eric Kim, today. You've probably already heard us talking about many of Eric's recipes we love or seen our recipe threads of us fangirling over his latest work from New York Times Cooking. Eric's first cookbook, Korean American Food That Tastes Like Home is already a New York Times bestseller. And today we're talking about the book, his parents, because they come up a lot in the book and in our conversation and lots more, including Hot Pockets. Yes. (laughs) It's hard not to jump right in with Eric. But before we do, a quick shout out to our community. By now, you guys should know that we offer a free community space where everyone shares recipes, tips, meal plans and also asks burning questions that get answered immediately, including by us. There is so much help and inspiration there that we like to call it the best place on the internet. I mean, it is. And if you're able to contribute to Didn't I Just Feed You, you can join us as a supporting member, which gives you access to the free space, plus other cool stuff, including two exclusive episodes every month, Find out more about your options and how to join at didn'tijustfeedyou.com backslash community. Okay, Megan, I'm sort of resistant to chit-chat too much before we dive in with Eric because it's such a great conversation and it was actually really an emotional one, I think for all three of us in a way, because his parents and growing up are such an important part of this book and the story that Eric is telling right now at this point in his life. But I guess before we jump in, I do want to say that the book you mentioned already, it's a New York Times bestseller. It's absolutely gorgeous. It's so fun. You can learn from it if you're not already with familiar with Korean cooking and Korean ingredients, but it's also just very playful and unique, like so many of Eric's recipes, which you can also find in all these other places. Do you eat a lot of Korean food at home with your kids or Korean flavors? I do not. Not that I think have any sort of um, authenticity or would right. call. Yeah. Mostly out. What about you? Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny that I love Korean food and we yes. used to go out for Korean food all the time, Mike and I. And I don't really remember going out as a family before COVID at this point. I know, right? But but my kids have definitely had exposure to Korean flavors for sure. But it's actually Eric's sheet pan bibimbap in the New York Times that I made, you know, a couple of months ago, a while now. 
Yeah, we were making it a lot last summer. Yes. Okay. Yes. Was it last summer? Okay. Either it way, it doesn't matter. The point is that I made it once and my kids loved it. And I was like, oh yeah, my kids really like Korean flavors and I like this and it's a genius recipe and it's delicious and it's full of roasted vegetables that they'll eat and crispy rice, which is always a good thing. So we've actually have since started going out for Korean food more and I'm trying to pull more Korean flavors into my cooking at home because everybody's on board. So I'm like, this book is right up my alley at the moment and my kids yeah. love it too. When you say something's right up your alley, you know, there can be books where it feels intimidating. You're like, oh, this is a whole new cuisine that I have to explore. But so much of Eric's book is like super accessible. I got excited and texted my friend who is gluten-free, dairy-free, but a huge kimchi fan. As soon as I saw there's like a kimchi sandwich, like kind of like mayo and tomato yes. style, where it's like white bread yes. and there's mayo and kimchi. And I was like, listen, you have to make this. You have to use up some of your very expensive uh, <laughs> gluten-free sourdough for this recipe. Like immediately sent the book home to her too. So yeah, it's one that I'm very excited about. And I also, like, I think there's a really interesting parenting conversation that comes out of talking with Eric. And that is a good sort of like through line from us talking about, are we going to stop talking about fast food yes. and junk food, our own guilt around yes. how we feed our kids? Um, because it seems like Eric's parents, they they have the magic sauce, the secret equation. I don't know what, what it is, but that is a kid. I would, a human, I would be so proud to call my kid. I couldn't agree more. So I'm excited after we hear from Eric to talk more about the family piece of it. So without further ado, Eric Kim is a New York Times staff writer born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia, and the author of Korean American Food That Tastes Like Home. He now hosts regular videos on New York Times Cooking, a YouTube channel, and writes a monthly column for the New York Times Magazine. A former contributing editor at Savor, Eric taught writing and literature at Columbia University, and his work has been featured in the Washington Post, Bon Appetit, Wine and Food, and he lives in the great city of New York. We love the subtitle of your book, Food That Tastes Like Home. And I guess we just kind of want to set the stage by asking you, what does home taste like generally? I mean, I know these recipes represent that, but can you just kind of like paint a picture of what home tastes like? What, what do you eat and you feel like your soul is nourished? That's a really good first question. You know, for me, that taste is both technical and emotional, right? And the technical answer is... I think it's food that's cooked with the hands and with um, seasoning in mind. I think each bite is perfectly seasoned. I think I'm a little biased because my mom is a very good cook. And growing up, I took that for granted because I just assumed all adults could cook well. And then I grew up and quickly learned that, whoa, no. Yes. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of my mom's peers are horrible at cooking. Um, <laughs> or, at, or at least I was less discerning as a child, you know, and it's just a funny realization. And just to know that your mother really is known in her community as the cook. And the one way I love to describe that is she has sonmat, 
which I try to define in the book. It's hard to define something that doesn't quite have like a direct translation, but it does translate literally to hand taste. But when I think of somebody, I think of someone who has a lot of emotional intelligence and they're, they're really good at, um, they usually don't use utensils or measuring spoons or tongs or anything. They mm -hmm. just use their hands. Like whenever I'm tossing a salad, I always use my hands because that's the only way to really get all the things distributed. And, and then you taste with your hands and there's a lot of that. And so I really feel that that's what my mom's food tastes like. And I think I've learned that from her. I've taken a lot of pride in, you know, feeding my friends my own cooking. And I love seeing people's faces light up or their eyes light up at that first bite. There used to be this show on ABC. Um, Nigella Lawson was one of the hosts called, I think it was called Taste or something. The whole competition was building just a single spoonful of food because that first oh, yes. bite. And I, I really, do you remember that show? Like, I, I really yeah, feel I that do. way. Totally forgot. Totally forgot. No one remembers it. But that concept, I, I really, I think I cook like that. I'm not saying that I want to punch you in the face with every bite of food, but because sometimes I do like mild flavors that you can eat a lot of, but no matter what, at that first taste, um, it's not necessarily always like an umami bomb. It's like, it surprises you or it's just like, wow, that's a perfectly seasoned bite of food. Um, I take a lot of pride in that. And I think that's something that's very hard to measure as a recipe developer. I've, I've only recently started to like figure out how to approximate it, but also how to communicate that at the end of the day, this is going to taste the way you season it. And I can't tell you how to do that because there are so many variables in play. That's the technical answer, but the emotional answer is really just, I wanted to write down our home cooking. You know, I think that's the food that I really want to eat. That's the food I wanted to present. And I think inherently that kind of cooking is based in reality. And, um, and so the recipes are pretty easy. They're simple. And I think simple is elegant to me. I think there's a lot of elegance in being able to achieve a really refined flavor with just like five ingredients. You know, it's something that I really, I really value. Yes. And there's a deep satisfaction in that both for the cook and for the eater. Um, you talked a lot about your mom. And so I want to, of course, both Stacy and I are raising our own families, as is a lot of our audience. A lot of Korean American talks about your, both your parents, your mom, who's this incredible home cook, but also like in making the KFC biscuit recipe in the book, you talk about your dad and how he influenced you. And so I think we see your brilliant work and your beautiful relationship with food. And we want to know. What did your parents do right that you feel like helped you grow into this incredible cook? Oh, such a thoughtful question. It like made me emotional. I feel like I documented what my mom did right, <laughs> which was <laughs> I, I've done it, you know, throughout my career. She's just really good at distilling the essence of a of a thing. So for instance, she has this wonderful tomato cucumber kind of soup i think in the book it's called oi nenkuk i'm pretty sure i called it that but it's it's in the it's the first recipe in the garden of jean chapter the vegetable chapter and it's a wonderful dish of just her garden vegetables like she always has a lot of cucumbers and cherry tomatoes growing in the summer and i'm really glad we're heading heading into that season because she would just have to process all of that right and so she would chop it all up 
and put it into a bowl with with ice and water and vinegar and salt, sugar, soy sauce, garlic, like never really measuring any of it, but um, just going by taste. And I think learning to cook by taste, so people have tried to translate that. I think it's really hard to translate. It's like inherently like immeasurable, <laughs> like in in the point, of, like the, the inherent point of it is to not measure it because you're going by feeling and by taste. And I feel this way about my own guacamole. Like I started developing recipes and I was trying to write down my guacamole, but it, it turned out horrible every time because I wasn't, I wasn't cooking it sure, sure. by taste and by feel. And so I, that's something that I think she did right culinarily. My dad is less of a cook, but I really think he, he's like an orator. He's a storyteller. So, and he loves attention. Um, <laughs> so he, He's kind of like a showman. He's like the, He's always the life of the party. He's, and I, maybe I got some of that from him a little bit, but um, I also got my mom's like anxiety. And <laughs> But I, I think my dad is, is very good at telling the story of a memory. So a lot of the book ended up just being recollections of the conversations we had at the dinner table. We'd be sitting at the dinner table and he'd be telling me something. And I'd be like, whoa, that's a really good story. And I would go grab my laptop and, and write it down and come back to dinner later. Um, And so it's just... I think having such a charismatic power couple as my parents, <laughs> they they just, um, I think they really instilled in me self-confidence probably, like how to really um, tell stories. And I'm sure they, they don't realize that they've done that, but I don't think I just happened in a vacuum. Like obviously I'm very influenced by the way they were. And um, my brother is also a storyteller, but he's more of an artist. He's kind of like a quieter person but he he tells stories through his his um art and i think this is um something they did right i don't know if they did it on purpose uh and so i think but i think um communicating i think communication mm -hmm. is really important so talking to your kids as much as possible is probably something that i would like to do yeah. you know when i have kids were you always interested in your family stories and family history? It's interesting because I'm first generation. I was very close with my dad. My dad has a very interesting backstory. And I was always, even through my teen years, when I would roll my eyes, I still was kind of interested. And at a certain point in my 20s, I went back to Greece with him and recorded a whole bunch of footage. It's interesting to me now, I have a 15-year-old, that's my oldest, and can't really tell how interested he is. I know he's soaking a lot of it up, but you know he doesn't ask a whole lot of questions. I'm sort of curious, like you and your brother, were you guys always interested in your family history? You said you would get up and go take notes on the stories your dads would tell. Was that always sort of natural for you? So I should clarify that me getting up from the dinner table. That was like when I was okay, writing the book. That's what got I meant. Um, yeah, because I was living back got home it. for a year. And um, and and what's funny is you just made me realize something. Hell yeah, no. okay, great. I say hell on this. Um, <laughs> great. <laughs> I mean, no, there's no way a 17-year-old even would have the emotional intelligence to like, I don't think, uh, to, to care about his parents. Um, so don't, I wouldn't worry about that. But also, you know, it's because you take things for granted. That was all I knew. So I just didn't think it was that interesting. I didn't care about it. I was really interested in American food. I yes. was like, why do we have to eat this stuff all day? Why can't we have mac and cheese? Why can't we have all this other stuff that my white friends get to have? Um, and even like, so, so I really think that children are inherently going to rebel, first of all, but also not realize 
um, what they have in front of them until they get older. And actually, I was a very moody teenager. You know, I, I was very moody. I sort of implied a little bit in the book. I ran away from home in the beginning. <laughs> but I think I remember moments when I would just be so mean to my parents and my dad would be like, I don't know what's going on, but one day you're going to grow up and I, I know this is going to pass. So I'm just letting yeah, it slide. Yeah, what a great attitude <laughs> and, to be able to have. Yeah, very, they were both very patient. But I also think, yeah, I was figuring myself out. You know, I was um, I was kind of like a straight A student and I did everything right yeah. by the book. Um, but I probably wasn't that nice to my parents um, until later in life. And I moved to New York and, you know, I did come back as a 30 year old. And I think his prophecy was correct. I did come home and I I started noticing yeah. what I had in front of me. I was like, so I think I think that's something that I, I forget about, but I should I should I should write about that more because what I what I really want people to know is that the parent child relationship is just so fraught and I think that's okay, especially with teens. I can't imagine what it's like having a 15 year old, but, um, it's the short, that's the short answer. <laughs> Lots of hormones. And, but, um, yeah, I, I think, I really think that it was only later that I was able to, as a professional, honestly, as an academic, as a writer, as a researcher, I was able to take these, um, moments at the dinner table or these, these foods that we grew up eating and realize all the potential mm -hmm. in them. Um, not potential of like, I don't know, popularity or anything, but potential of a deeper story. Um, it's like, wow, that's so interesting that we ate that growing up. Like we really didn't realize how interesting that was, like weird that was. I don't want to say weird, but I mean yeah. weird in a good way. I, I always, yeah. So Unique that's, yeah. maybe is a better word for it. Yeah. You, I, you mentioned American food and part of what I love about your cooking is that you don't abandon that. You're not just going back and telling a story of your parents and what you've learned about your, you know, family, your genealogy, your history, your ancestors, but you're telling your story. And that combines some traditional Korean food with a lot of American food influence. What were your favorite American foods, quote unquote, American foods growing up? I was thinking about this recently because I was shooting in the studio yesterday and we were talking about Hot Pockets and yes. man, could I eat a Hot Pocket? I, I had like two or three or four of those a week after school, you know, my favorite was the broccoli cheddar <laughs> chicken one. Cause it was so substantial. It had like, not just the cheese sauce, but it had broccoli and had chicken. And that was the perfect bite before dinner time. And honestly, sometimes with leftover rice, I would eat, I would cut up the, the Hot Pocket <laughs> Sometimes I would like even squeeze the cheese, the filling out onto a bowl of rice. You know? Genius, I would, actually. I would genius. eat it because it was because it was salty. Yeah. So the um, the rice would offset that saltiness. And even back then, I was like quote unquote cooking. And I just really think that hot pockets are a great panchan, and because <laughs> they're not quite a meal. Yeah, you know they're, they're they're small, but um, the ham and cheese one is a is something that I started to appreciate more in my later years. That cheese is very molten and. Really good. I and love that's a very salty hot pot. It's very salty. Yeah, it yes, is. It is. Yes. That's why it's so good. And I bet it's great with like a glass of wine, you know, as an adult. Oh, yeah. Something crisp and yes. acidic. Cheesy. I can see yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 
2024 is the year we're focused on finally reducing dinnertime overwhelm at Didn't I Just Feed You? And that means making grocery shopping easier and more cost effective, especially when it comes to the foods we all tend to spend the most on, like meat. Enter ButcherBox, where you can count on incredible deals on premium cuts. At ButcherBox, you can choose a curated box or customize your order of 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork-raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood to stock your fridge with all the proteins you need for the week, month, or even the year at prices that are hard to come by at the grocery store. That's all your protein shopped for in one shot at great prices delivered to your door with free shipping. Just one change, switching over to ButcherBox, and you guarantee yourself fewer trips to the grocery store and savings that are hard to find at the supermarket. Dinnertime overwhelm, be gone. ButcherBox is offering our listeners their choice of a weeknight meal essential, three pounds of chicken thighs, two pounds of ground beef, or one pound of premium steak tips for free in every order for a whole year. Plus, you get $20 off your first order. Sign up today at butcherbox.com backslash D-I-J-F-Y and use the code D-I-J-F-Y, short for Didn't I Just Feed You, to choose your free offer and get $20 off. This episode is brought to you with support from Whole Foods. As a resident Greek girl, I am a sucker for Mediterranean flavors and want you to taste the Mediterranean too. Go to Whole Foods Market now and save on regionally inspired products through March 19th. Find sales on animal welfare certified meat, including boneless, skinless, air-chilled chicken breast, bone-in beef short ribs, ground lamb, and more. Save on whole bronzini and sustainable wild-caught sockeye salmon. And stock up on Mediterranean essentials like feta cheese crumbles, whole wheat pita pockets, and if you're over 21, wines from Spain, Greece, and Italy. Grab your ingredients and experiment with family-friendly Mediterranean cuisine today. Think Greek-style ground lamb pitas, lemony oven-roasted chicken, or bronzino, or instant pot short ribs braised in wine. All simple and delicious. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. Do you ever feel like you're in a never-ending cycle of snacks and meals? We get it. That's why we're excited to share HomeThreads, the ultimate solution for creating a stylish and functional family space. At HomeThreads.com, discover furniture that can handle the chaos of family life. From wipeable dining chairs to kitchen tables and light fixtures. Or you can just freshen up your kitchen with trays, counter lamps, decor, and other affordable accents that will help you update your kitchen into a room you love spending time in. Head over to HomeThreads.com slash D-I-J-F-Y, short for Dinner and I Just Feed You, to get a code for 15% off your first order. Because if you're going to be feeding them three times a day, plus snacks, you deserve a home that feeds your style. HomeThreads, love where you live. That's HomeThreads.com backslash D-I-J-F-Y today to get 15% off your first order. Talk to us a little bit about what was on your table, like your family table growing up and how those things like the Hot Pockets also fit into your diet. Because I think I remember that there's some time where you're like alone in the kitchen and you would make things like Hot Pocket filling and rice for yourself or pork chops and like how those things piece together. Yeah, I think telling the story, I can just start it by talking about the Korean Panchan table, right? It's it's a genius way to eat, I think. Um, 
a bowl of white rice is the, at the center, and then you have whatever side dishes that are in the fridge. Usually, kimchi, pickles, um, maybe a soup or a stew that you reheat. And you know, as I got older and I was starting to cook for myself, some of my like after school snacks would like make their way in, like the the bowl of random avocados with a little rice vinegar and, and seaweed, and um, maybe like leftover hot pocket would be there. And um, I, I remember growing up, I, I had to start telling my mom like don't throw that away. I wanted to eat it with my rice at dinner. Like, you know, there's like, but it was like a sliver of a Hot Pocket left. Are you, are you yes. serious? And um, I was like, don't waste that. Um, so, so it was just like the mixing started happening later. And I think that's really lovely. It's the consciousness of a child coming into, you know, adolescence and adulthood. And I, I think um, it's lovely to see how the dinner table can change with that. And so I, I don't know, I, I really, this is like very, early for me but I would love I can't wait to have kids like I'm excited to for the food part of it whenever my friends have kids many of them are having their first children now and I'm always like what are they eating this week like I'm so curious like the, the way children eat is fascinating to me and um, because your taste buds do ch- I, I don't know the recent the recent science yeah. but I every seven years right your taste buds change every seven years That's I heard the and, ballpark, um, yeah so that's something that I noticed about myself even and and of course it will happen with little humans who grow like at lightning speed, you know, I think that's so fun and interesting. And like, I used to hate chapche actually. I thought chapche was so boring. And then as I got older, I started really appreciating it and eating it more and really just inhaling it and be like, this is really good. Yeah. <laughs> and it's also, you get to play a role in shaping that sometimes not as strong a role as you want. <laughs> Where yeah. you're like, oh, I can, you know, influence my kid. And actually they're like, no, really, like I'm my own person. That's right. not for me. But yeah. different exposures and different flavors over time, really what kids are exposed to and what they get a chance to eat and experiment with really does make a difference and shapes the way that their taste buds change over time. Yeah. And I think parents all do it very differently. Yeah. But when I really look back, I, I realize how like <laughs> how lenient my mom was she was she never forced food on us my brother and I were probably pretty picky but she would I remember she would just talk to us she would ask us um once in a while I'd be like I'm so sorry mom but like I really hate potatoes in my fried rice and she'd be like oh I've been doing this for like five years why haven't you why haven't you told me you know I must have been maybe 13 or 14 or something and so she never did that again and I don't know and I think that openness it's like why would why would I feed my kid something he doesn't want to eat like well, you know, when I can just leave the potatoes out, it's it's a preference thing. That's and, so cool. Uh, and then maybe maybe later in life I'll get to know it. But it, maybe it makes us sound spoiled or something. But I think that openness with food and it's not the lack of some kind of like authoritarian, you know, you have to eat this or um, any leftovers you're going to finish yeah. um, in heaven as like a rotten bowl of food. That was like what an aunt told me once. Yeah. Um, that, fam- family, that family, family has intense. family has some crazy stuff to say about the way kids eat. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And I remember that same cousin. I went over to her house, and you know, we would go over there all the time. And as kids, and the butter pecan ice cream, we were only allowed like one little spoonful. Like we weren't allowed to have a whole bowl, and it was just like this treasured thing that you couldn't. And I remember being like, "That's so interesting." Like that. But also, I think um, our families grew up different, yeah. and and it's. I think that's really fascinating the way that happens. So were yeah. your parents pretty lenient about Hot Pockets and quote unquote I know, junk I was food? like, is Jean buying the Hot yeah. Pockets? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I think as I got older, I was definitely 
going to the grocery store with her and putting things in the in the cart and she was never taking anything out she was yeah she let us have all of that um i mean that's why i have such an affinity for junk food honestly right now um <laughs> and i don't think it's a bad thing but um I, I don't think i think now she's she's much more health conscious and all that but she just she certainly just was a part of a generation that was thinking about i think maybe the growth of children as like the more you eat the bigger you'll get and i don't know if that's really true but um you know she just wanted me to eat a lot and um and i think because there are so many peers who were who were eating a lot maybe as children and then they were maybe a little heavier but then those are the kids who like really shot up and that's sort of like this image and maybe maybe in my mother's version of korea but um korean culture or something it's like the the more you eat, the taller you'll get. I don't know how true that is, but I don't think it quite works out that way. But I do know, I do <laughs> oh, yeah. know that feeling, and um, whatever the reasoning behind it, it I feel like you were very lucky to grow up with someone who was just open about food and not judgmental. You know, food is food. Yeah. Food is good. It's nourishing you. You'll grow. You need it. You're growing. I mean, that's yeah. That's an attitude I hope to adopt more fully. Yeah, it's definitely something I, I mean, you're making me realize how much I appreciated that. Um, because, you know, she was filling it out with real meals and she cooked all the time and she was a great cook. And, you know, yes. we were eating vegetables yes. and having our, our, our nutrients. But um, this makes me think about this one time at the grocery store, I was really little. I think I was small enough to be sitting in the grocery cart. I have a crazy memory, by the way. I remember all these things. But I remember she opened a box of fruit roll-ups for me and gave me one before we paid for it. And I was like, that's so, are we allowed to do that? And that was just like our little secret. And I remember that, I think she did it because I was feeling sad that day or something. And so it's like those little memories of uh, food being comfort. And I think a lot of people have different feelings about using food for comfort, but um, I think the memories are what matter. And, you, you know, you're saying you, were, you weren't sure if your children would remember things later or what they would retain, but you'd be surprised. Like you remember all the little things, I think. Yeah. You, you kind of just remember all of it, I think, but you remember it later. Yeah. Right. Much later. And we're, we're all, we're, waiting. we're all parenting towards that goal. I think. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I want to make sure we don't spend the whole time talking about your parents. I want to talk about Korean American and, and specifically what it means to you to cook in a Korean American style or how you identify yourself as a cook? Yeah, I think the main story that this book tells is freedom in the kitchen. I, I start the book talking about running away from home and going into my cousin's kitchen in Nashville. And watching her cook was a really eye-opening experience for me, I think. I was like, wow, I can't wait to become an adult so that I can have my own kitchen so I can cook whatever the hell I want. And I think with that ethos in mind, that's how I feel about Korean American, which is once I got over this anxiety about having to be authentic or having to cook quote unquote Korean food, I realized that the way I cook, the way I just mix things, the way I I'm really inspired by my mom's pantry, but also really want to make a good shrimp and grits dish, you know, or the way I really feel about the power of sesame oil and how it can taste really good in sour cream dip. You know, these things, I realized that this type of cooking is, it's the way I cook. It's the way a lot of people in my, in my generation cook. And so 
you know, I wanted to sort of describe that or at least showcase it through the book. And I don't know, I'm really grateful that this title, this book, um, has received so much um, love from from people. And I think the main message I get every day is thank you for, I don't know, it's like always something about people feeling seen. And I think that's that's probably why I wrote it. I just like never felt seen in books on the screen, like stuff like that. Um, because, you know, this experience is really specific. It's like the child of Korean immigrants in the South and the child happens to be gay and and I don't know, just like there are like a yeah. lot of things going on that is there, there isn't like a clean Nickelodeon TV show that shows like an animation of like a gay Korean Southern Catholic yeah. guy, you know? Yes. So <laughs> it's nice to just like write that. And um, anyway, yeah, I think freedom is the, the main definition, I would say. Your answer makes me very emotional as a mom, because that's all you really want for your kids is you want them to grow up feeling like they can fully occupy who they are and be comfortable with that and be seen. But then also as a first generation Greek, this idea that as a food professional a recipe developer, I've written two cookbooks. And the question I always get is when are you going to write a Greek cookbook? And I know what that means to people when they ask me the question and it's not the food that I cook. It's the food that my grandmother yeah. cooks. And I right. love that food and it would be influential on what I make, but I don't make Greek yeah. the Greek food that my grandmother carried with her from Greece when she came here as already a mother, already as an adult. It, yeah. But it does use a lot of dill and a lot of lemon and a lot of those elements and it mixes it up with all the American foods that I love. And I just think that in general, the first generation experience when it comes to food is not a story that's been told. And I love seeing people who are first generation from all over the world starting to talk about what it means to be a first generation American from Mexico, from Korea, from China, from Greece, from Turkey, because there's this really beautiful through line that I think we all really understand and appreciate. Yeah. Yeah. There is this sense of community. I, you know, food media, I always say that it's, you know, it's always been mm, <laughs> competitive and people are kind of mean in it sometimes, yes. a lot of times. But I think what's really lovely about this new set of cookbooks, especially this this spring season, Rick Martinez, Mikosina, um, even, you know, Ali Slagle, I Dream of, I Dream of Dinner. Yes. Andy Baragani's new book. I think Yuanda Kamalafe is going to have a book soon, um, uh, you know, about her Lagos kitchen. I just think I'm really grateful that, all of us kind of grew up, became writers so that we could, <laughs> so that we could write these books that sort of, I think it, it, it shows publishers that this is a story that people are interested in now. And, but, um, you know, what's really interesting is I, I read this review of my book that was critical of, um, this model of, you know, the, the son of an immigrant kind of, um, doting on his mother. And, and it, it, it was, um, I really appreciated it, actually. I was like, yeah, I also hope it doesn't go too far. I hope people don't, I hope publishers don't think that like, oh, every book has to be like yes. this or every, because everyone's story is so different. I happen to have a very loving mother that I, whom I love, um, but maybe a lot of other people don't have that experience. There are Korean adoptees out there who have like very different books. Peter Serpico has a, a book called Learning Korean that's come, that's come out recently. And 
you know, so I just think there are different experiences and I just hope that publishing makes room for all of it because that's all really important. Okay, I have to be the practical one all the time and be like, okay, hey, sometimes I'm practical. Every sometimes. once in a while. <laughs> uh, for people who are going to go and buy Korean American if they haven't already, what are like top five pantry staples? They can be Korean. That would be ideal. Like something that most people might like not keep on hand. I mean, sesame oil, I think of as being ubiquitous now, but. What are some of the like really exciting things that will help them cook from Korean American too? Yeah, I think about this all the time because they've become real staples in my pantry. And gochujang is of course one. Tenjang is the other one. Tenjang is a soybean paste that I just really want people to harness the power of. It's so magical. There's so many uses for it. And I'm doing my work at my job, trying to publish as many recipes with tenjang as possible so that it becomes like more you know, prevalent in people's kitchens. Because it's, it's, it's like one of those things where you, you're shouting it from the rooftops. It's like, I want everyone to know about this thing that tastes so good to me. Um, tenjang is important. And then um, gochukaru. I, I think I say in the book that you can't use this book without gochukaru. And luckily it's a little easier to find now. Um, but it's a red pepper powder that... Uh, the red cabbage kimchi is made out of. And so it's like about time where that word is going to end up in the dictionary soon, I think. Because I don't know if you guys know this, but the word pibimbap was added to the dictionary before gochujang. But you know, oh, like really? the main ingredient in, yeah. yeah, a main ingredient in pibimbap is gochujang. Yeah. I, I part of right. me wonders, like, you know, it's the the dish follow, the dish happens first. And then in terms of like cultural, like awareness or something. Um, so I think about this all the time, the connection between cultural awareness and, and linguistics or the dictionary. And the dictionary is measuring culture, not the other way around, you know. And then I also think, well, you said sesame oil, but yeah, toasted sesame oil is the taste of Korean food to me. I just really, everyone thinks of like fiery soups and stews and, and pickles and stuff, but sesame oil, when you add it to something, it just really adds this nuttiness that to me is the taste of my mom's food, it's the taste of Korean food. So many of the vegetable preparations are actually just garlic maybe a little soy sometimes not mostly just salt and then sesame oil and it's a very simple taste but um very nourishing and so how many was that four <laughs> four. four. Oh, yeah. that's four yeah one more Ooh. three crabs fish sauce okay this isn't sponsored i'm not allowed to like do anything like that as a times journalist but i do love three crabs brand fish sauce it and i like it because it it's it's vietnamese but my mom my korean mother likes using that. And I think there are plenty of Korean fish sauces on the market, but fish sauce isn't just Vietnamese and Thai. And it, it's it's Korean as well. Like kimchi, one of the main ingredients is fish sauce. And I think um, it makes sense because Korea is a peninsula and seafood um, plays a big role in, in Korean food, but also in the pantry. The way to make all of those anchovies last is to, you know, salt and ferment them. And, and fish sauce just man, it just adds so much. I have this fish sauce butter chicken um, on NYT cooking that was actually, it was originally supposed to be in the, the cookbook in the TV dinners chapter, but I had trouble connecting it to Korean, the Korean part of American. I was like, what makes this Korean? And maybe if I, you know, the, the lesson that fish sauce is as Korean as everything else came later, but it also belongs in this book. I think it's sort of like a B-side or Maybe think of it as like the single or something nice. before the <laughs> yeah, out, before the the album came out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
All right. Before we go, what's the most important thing? Maybe important is the wrong word. What do you want to teach your audience most, like in this moment in time? I think I want to teach people to break the rules when whenever they see it, not out of like any kind of arbitrary belligerence or something, mm-hmm. I, but more like make recipes fit in your own kitchen. I, I think that's really important. Um, but it, it's a careful balance. Like don't substitute the gochukaru and gochukaru salmon. If you don't eat fish, maybe substitute the salmon for like tofu or something else. Like you can substitute whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. But when there's like a learning opportunity in a recipe, like identify what's a learning opportunity and what's, mm-hmm. um, you know, something that can just, you know, be for you. And I do that all the time when I'm looking at a recipe and I'm not cooking for work. I'm like, whoa, that's a great idea. But I only have this right now, but I really want to eat this. And then so I'll I'll use the, use it as a blueprint and always mark it for myself later. I can, I'm going to go look for that very esoteric root vegetable um, when I'm at the other, well, you know, whatever market mm-hmm. next time. But at least I had the flavor profile first and, and it, it blew me away or like it taught me something new. And so um, I want people to be open about what their idea of um, their pantry and their grocery store is, because I think too often recipe readers are like, oh, this isn't in my pantry. It's not in my grocery store. But recipes aren't just service. They're not just written for a reader. They're documents of the author's history and their context. And, you know, these recipe writers often have something to teach. And I think it's really important for cooks to always think of themselves as students. That's how I think of myself at the times, even like, I know I'm supposed to be some kind of authority, but I actually, the reason I love my job is because I'm a student. I I, I get to learn from all my editors and all these people, amazing people around me who are so talented and we're all learning from each other. That's a real curious person. A curious cook is the best cook, I think. I love that. I also think it circles really nicely back to freedom because when you can learn how to look at a recipe and distill like these are the this is the flavor profile this is where i'm going to get the flavor and here's where i can riff then you start to open up the possibilities and you start to build confidence and do your own thing and start to mash things up in a way that's meaningful and makes the most of those recipes that you trusted in the first place freedom yeah Okay, before we sign off, Eric, is there anything that we didn't ask you about that you wanted the opportunity to talk about? No, that was such a lovely conversation. Like, thank you. So um, I had a a really good time. Stacy, did you cry? I might have cried. (laughs) I definitely (laughs) cried a little bit. Why is this such an emotional conversation for us? And even like we hung up with Eric and we were both, like wanted to talk about the conversation even more. Yes. He really like struck a warm place in our hearts. Yes. Because I think as people who aspire to raise good humans who are also curious cooks. And just curious people. Curious people. Eric is just all of that for me. And I, I like, that's why I asked the question, like, how, what did your parents do, right, that gives you this beautiful, creative relationship? We've talked about this off recording that I feel like Eric is one of the most fun, interesting food writers to follow right now. There's so, there can, there can be a lot of repetitiveness in our industry in food media. Yeah. And Eric doesn't, it's all feels so like fresh and brilliant and new and creative and there's freedom. 
there's freedom in his writing. Yeah. yeah. The freedom is he feels comfortable. It's he comes across as someone who feels comfortable in his skin. And even beyond the like curious cook, like I don't know if Isaac will ever be a curious cook, but I want Isaac to approach whatever it is he loves. Eric clearly loves cooking with that same attitude, curiosity, and freedom. Yeah. Like that's the trifecta, right? That's when you like feel good in your skin and you can put yourself out there and experiment. But like, I also loved how he talked about how a recipe is also something that a writer has written to collect. I don't remember. He put it in a much more beautiful way than I'm about to, but it's, it's their memory too. It's, it's their recollection of something important to them. So that while we also encourage home cooks to feel free to riff, that there's something you might want to like pause and think about what do I want to preserve here? What's the essence of what this recipe writer is sharing with me? And how can I use that and build on it in a way that's authentic? It becomes a relationship between the recipe writer and the person who's cooking, which as a recipe writer, I also really love. Yes. It does bubble up for me this, this thought that I have which is, you know, Eric talked a lot about how there's, there, there seem to be, especially like in the last two years, a lot more first generation voices coming out in cookbooks. And I feel like Korean American wouldn't be a New York Times bestseller five years ago. It wouldn't have been 10 years ago. Part of that is like Eric's own personal growth and getting to the point of writing that book, but also like our hunger for those types of cookbooks. And I think that exploring history, culture through the lens of food is becoming much more popular than it ever has been. And maybe that's the reason why it can be so popular now. Okay, this is interesting. And I hope I can articulate it without carrying on too long and babbling. But I feel like both you and I come from a generation of recipe writers and food writers where it really felt like the model was about, you're the expert, you have something to teach and, or, cause these can work in combination, you're of service. Yes. And I think you and I have both really leaned heavily into the being of service. service. Like, let me tell you everywhere where you can make this your own, where you can use whatever ingredients. And there is a process of extracting yourself. Yeah. From a recipe, right? Where it's like, I don't want to put too much Stacy in this because I really want whoever's cooking this to feel, to be able to put themselves into this recipe confidently. And I love that this new generation of writers, they are finding a place for themselves in their recipes and in their stories about food. And to me, as a more mature food writer, but also now as a mother, I love that. I love that for young food writers coming up where there's a confidence in and in, in putting a stake in the ground and, and putting your own story and your own experience and your own tastes into your recipe in a way that actually really matters. That's it. That's the episode. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't that interesting? We didn't, that wasn't how I don't, that isn't how I've approached my work. And I don't think 
it's really how you've approached your work very much well, either. Like I mean, we have in a single think of, story. Think about the like, idea that I wrote recipes for someone else. Yes. For 10 years. Yes. Where my, I couldn't, I had no voice in it. And I think Eric really like, there's a little nerve that was hit in this idea that like mm. food writing for so long was so competitive and so exclusive. Yes. It still is in many ways. I think Eric was talking about this recently on his Instagram where people were like, he had an outlet be like, well, can you give us something that's more Korean? Cause we're only making space for one Korean voice in this, this issue. And he was like, I, then I'm out. Um, I think there's a lot of nuance to food media that most people aren't privy to outside of yeah. recipe writers. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And even when you're not the food writer who's writing the whole essay that goes with the recipe, even when you're just, you know, an editor reaches out to you and says, Hey, we're doing a story on weeknight meals made with ground beef. Yes. And you just write the recipe for it. There's still this process of how much of yourself do you put in it? How much is it supposed to reflect the publication? It's it's just great. Like I'm just so excited. And he, and Eric rattled off a whole bunch of other books coming out this spring. And I really hope that our audience will look into them, whether it's just reading the blurb on Amazon or going to the library and checking them out. Eric's book first, because it is just absolutely fabulous. But we'll put links to all the other authors and their upcoming books that Eric mentioned at the end of the episode and check it out. And, you know, for those people listening who really do appreciate and rely heavily on the kind of food writing that we do, where it's just really like in service, <laughs> these are simple meals. These are things we think your kids will like. These are things you can deconstruct easily. Here's how we wrote it. You know, this strata calls for our asparagus and ham, but actually if you have, if you hate asparagus, it's okay. You can still follow this. That's great. Those have a place in your repertoire. But please do give some of these other recipes a try and really follow along the stories and follow along the recipes as they're written and then see what you can take from it for yourself. Okay. Are doing it? Are you doing it? I'm doing it. I'm saying I want to hear from our wonderful community. Uh, we hope that you've joined us there. If not, join for free at didn'tijustfeedyou.com backslash community. Or if you want those bonus episodes and other goodies, join our supporting community. You can also keep in touch with us on Instagram where we are at didn't I just feed you or by signing up for our newsletter. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to didn't I just feed you wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you're already a subscriber, do you know what we're going to say? Leave us a rating or a review. We'll sing for you. <laughs> That, or, that that will backfire or we, or just do won't. it yeah, or we won't <laughs> yes i think we won't i think we won't but the those bring us joy and they help other busy home cooks find us a huge thank you to our editor samantha getzik i'm megan and i'm stacy stay sane and well fed until next week be sure to subscribe to didn't i just feed you wherever you're listening and don't forget to rate and review